Well, nothing changed in Jason's circumstances. The only change happened in his mind, but it made all the difference in the world. Mark Buchanan, in his book, The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath, tells the story. He was a young pastor who was naive and cocky. He had two arts degrees, his Bible, and the gift of gab, and he thought that he could handle any problem on his own. So when a woman called about her 12-year-old stepson, Jason, and described the problems that he was causing, Buchanan confidently assured her that two sessions with him would solve all the problems. The next day, the woman and Jason showed up in the office, and they were not churchgoers, but the woman was desperate, broke, and had nowhere else to go. And she talked about the problems that Jason was causing at home while he slumped down in his chair. Outright defiance, abusive language, extreme withdrawal, vandalism, smashing plates, kicking holes in walls and doors, keen cars thrashing the cats, threats and violence towards her and her daughter, stealing money from her purse, stealing her jewelry and pawning it, cannabis seeds in his jean pockets, and now what had prompted the call, getting caught shoplifting. The police had brought him home handcuffed. Buchanan admits that he knew within five minutes that he was out of his league. He gulped hard, not knowing what to say, and so he asked how they had ended up in the same household. He writes it was a tale of family brokenness for generations. Jason's mother was a drug addict, and worse, she had Jason when she was only a teenager and left him and his father when Jason was only months old. Later, when Jason was five, she came back. By then, Jason's father had remarried to the woman, the stepmom, sitting before me in my office. She was caring for the boy, but Jason's mom wanted her baby back. She wanted to be a good mom. She wanted to start a home and settle down and make a life for both of them. But three weeks into it, she abandoned the idea of motherhood. She left once more, never to be seen or heard from again. Buchanan then admits he knew he was really out of his league at that moment, and so with his eyes opened, he just cried out to God for help and asked for the wisdom of Solomon. And suddenly, the story of the two women fighting over the same child came to him. And they bring the child before Solomon, both claiming the child as their own. And Solomon calls for a sword and instructs the, the guard to cut the child in two and give one half to each woman. But instead, the real mother steps forward and says the other woman can have the child to save its life. And Solomon awards the child to the real mother. So Buchanan addresses the boy, Jason. Jason, look at me. He does, half-hearted. No, Jason, really, look at me. I need you to listen very carefully. The boy slightly stirs. Buchanan goes on to tell the story of the two women with Solomon. 
He tells them of coming before King Solomon. He tells Jason what he would have done if he was there. He would have used DNA testing to prove who the real mother was. But of course, Solomon couldn't do that. Instead, he asks for a sword and proposes again to cut the baby and to give a half to each woman. Jason, are you still listening? Yes. A funny thing happens next, said Buchanan. One of the women steps up and says, oh, I'm sorry, I should never have let it get this far. Give the baby to her. Now, Jason, Buchanan says, I have a question for you. Who do you think was the real mother? And without blinking or pausing, the boy answers the woman who gave the child away. Jason, you're right. How did you know? Well, he said, because she didn't want the baby killed. Because she loved him? Yes, said Jason. Yes, said Buchanan. She loved her child so much she'd rather see him alive and whole in another woman's arms than dead in her own. Jason, was that your mother? Was that what she did with you? She'd rather lose you by giving you away than lose you in a worse way by trying to keep you? Buchanan says, if only I had a camera at that moment. The way Jason sat straight up. The way light flooded him and his eyes brimmed with wonder and laughter. The way joy returned after years of exile. The way his face, scowling and ugly, only a moment before, a bitter old man's face turned youthful and hopeful. Jason was like a soldier standing in the soft glow of dawn after a night of death has rained down on him from the enemy shells and he is astonished that he's still alive yet nothing changed in Jason's circumstances the only thing that changed was his mind and Buchanan writes this often we get this backwards we won't change our minds we won't revise our attitudes until someone God a parent a boss spouse, child, or co-worker changes our circumstances. We refuse to budge until someone else moves a mountain and our lives shuttle between if only and what ifs. If only we had more money, if only we had a different job, if only my spouse loved me more, if only my child wasn't so rebellious. But this is often not how God works. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2 says, And then Buchanan writes, under God's economy, nothing really changes until our minds do. Transformation is the fruit of a changed outlook. First, our minds are renewed, and then we are transformed, and then everything is different, even if it is the same. God is more interested in changing your mind than changing your circumstances. He wants you to have the same mind and very attitude of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to find rest and renewal in God, it will certainly require change in our thinking. The battle for and with our thoughts is essential to practice Sabbath and find rest in God. And the passage we're going to look at today reveals this. 
We will examine our need to pay attention to our thoughts and to bring them under Christ. And then we will look at some sinful and unhealthy thinking patterns and how to overcome them with his word. And then we will conclude with a Sabbath practice called capturing our thoughts or taking thoughts captives before we come to the Lord's table. So the passage is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6, if you have a Bible, or it's on page 822 in the Bibles in front of you. And we went through 2 Corinthians in the year 2020, a difficult letter for a difficult time. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter in an attempt to reconcile with the church because there were people there that were spreading all this bad news and rumors about him. Even though he founded the church and ministered there for a year and a half, people in the church were unsure about Paul because these people in the church were making accusations against him. So he defends himself and his ministry team, and he wants to reconcile with the majority of the church. And he has done this reconciling work through chapters 1 to 9, but now in chapter 10, he's going to take on those opposed to him directly while still reconciling with the church as a whole. Because what these who are opposed to him teach may poison the whole church. So Paul must deal with this decisively, enter into this spiritual battle, and here we will find the counsel needed about our thinking. So 2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, I, Paul, myself, entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So Paul appeals to the broader congregation with gentleness, with humility to stay true to the gospel. And he does not want to speak to them like he'll have to speak to those who are opposed to him. He notes that his opponents say Paul lives only by the flesh or only according to human ways. Well, they apparently have spiritual knowledge and spiritual power that he does not have. So in verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Though we live in our human bodies, we're not waging war according to the way humans do. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And what are these weapons? And on the back page of your bulletin, providentially today, I gave you the entire message. So you don't have to take any notes. You don't have to watch for anything on the screen. You can just listen. But if you want to follow along, I'm going to follow that outfit, outline. Our weapons are first the gospel. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation 
for anyone who believes. So the gospel can penetrate the thickest wall, the hardest heart to bring someone to Christ. And then we find many weapons in Ephesians 6, especially verses 14 to 18, like the belt of truth and the chest armor of righteousness and the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and prayer and praying in the spirit at all times. So God provides all of these weapons that have divine power to do what? He says, according to the latter half of verse 4, they can destroy or demolish strongholds. And this is an image from ancient warfare where if you were an invading army and you came upon an enemy city, to actually capture the city and defeat it, you had to capture the stronghold. And the stronghold was somewhere in the center, usually a castle-like structure with more reinforced walls where the king and the citizens would flee once the outer walls were breached. So you'd have to bring in catapults to throw these massive stones against the stronghold or somehow lay siege to the stronghold using siege ramps or siege towers. And eventually, you would hope to bring down and destroy the stronghold. Well, these spiritual weapons from God are empowered by God to take down strongholds. But what kind of strongholds is he talking about? And the ones that Paul talks about in verse 5, I think, are ones we would not think of. When you think of strongholds, you probably think, oh, well, that organization over there that is ruled by the devil. Or that group over here that is trafficking, trafficking drugs, obviously there is a stronghold of the enemy. But look at the strongholds described in verse 5. One, arguments. A wall of wrong thinking that stands in opposition to the teaching of God. Two, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. So the first is arguments, the second is opinions, and I'm going to look at my life and look at things and the knowledge of God, forget that. I'm not going to live under the authority of God. God doesn't exist. And then the third one is thoughts not obedient to Jesus. And do you notice where all three of these strongholds reside? In our minds. Arguments opinions, thoughts. And specifically, the image regarding the thoughts is one of capturing prisoners of war. He says in verse 5, at the end, taking every thought captive, captive to obey Christ. So once you breached the stronghold, you went in and you took captives out. And the captives are thoughts that are not obedient to Christ. Thoughts against Christ, thought against ourselves or against others. Thoughts that poison our thinking and relationships. Thoughts that enslave and hinder us. And to take these thoughts captive means we have to be aware of them. We must examine them. We must examine to see, does this thought submit to Christ? Would Christ be honored by this thought? Does this thought align with Christ and his ways? Well, how do you do that? How do you take thoughts captive to obey Christ? Because Paul says in verse 4, it's possible not only to fight, 
but to destroy these strongholds. So we need to use God's weapons to tear down arguments, opinions, and thoughts that are disobedient to Christ. How? By using the weapons, using God's word and prayer to take captive disobedient thoughts. And I shared with you last week about the burnout I went through 30 years ago and in my time of recovery and ever since I have learned much about how thoughts and especially limited or negative thinking can be used by the enemy to make things worse for us and for others. The devil loves to use negative thinking to beat us down, to destroy us, to destroy our relationships, to destroy our church. So I want to share with you three negative thinking patterns that can lead to sin along with some verses to combat them. So here's number one. Pattern number one of negative thinking is filtering, where we focus only on negative details while ignoring the positive. We let one negative detail color an entire event. Oh, I would have enjoyed dinner out, except my steak was slightly overcooked, so the whole evening was ruined. Really? One overcooked steak ruined your whole evening? Or, oh, we liked a couple things about that church, but I didn't like that one worship song, so it's a bad church. Remember the ten spies who came back from the promised land? Oh, it's a good land, but the people there are way bigger than we are. The fortifications there are impossible. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. We can't do it. And did God say, oh, well, you know, sorry, guys. Made a mistake. Promised land. Can't do it. No, he, he sentenced them to death for their unbelief and sent that entire generation back into the desert so they would die there and their children would inherit the promised land. So, if we tend to filter our thoughts negatively and we focus on the theme of loss, for example, we need to fight that kind of thinking. Oh, I've lost everything. One bad thing happens. I've lost everything. No. No matter what happens, we still have the love of God. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, we experience loss, but we have not lost everything. We have not lost the love of God, and nothing can separate us from that. Or maybe when something negative happens, we focus on danger. We focus on danger, and that's the only thing we can see. This is dangerous. We can't do anything because it's not dangerous, not meeting up to my standards. Well, we need to refocus and take the danger seriously, but also focus on the safety and comfort found in God. So Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our 
afflictions, any affliction that we go through, God is at work comforting us. So yes, there is danger, but there's also safety and comfort to be found in God. Or maybe our focus is on incompetence, the incompetence of ourselves or the incompetence of someone else. Well, if that's our focus and we focus only on that, we need to refocus on what they or we do well. And one of the greatest examples of this is Jesus with his disciples and Jesus with the thief on the cross. If Jesus only focused on the negative about that thief, do you think he would have even talked to him? And yet Jesus focused on the thief's faith and declaration. Will you please remember me when your kingdom comes? Yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. So that's filtering one negative thinking pattern that can lead to all kinds of trouble if we don't take that thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Here's another one. Polarized thinking. Everything is black and white and there is no shade of gray allowed. There's no middle ground. And I realize that talking about this, the charge can be made that, well, we're just going to compromise everything and we're not going to stand for anything. Well, you know that's not true in this church. You know, we have a statement of faith. We hold a high view of Scripture. We take positions. We stand on the Scriptures. But with that, there's still diversity of opinions under those essentials. And if we harbor or practice polarized thinking, it can lead to a very judgmental attitude towards others or towards ourselves. Polarized thinkers have no room for others' mistakes. They have no room for differing opinions which can lead to this harsh and severe judgment of ourselves or of others, which is sinful and destructive. We can do this to ourselves. A mom with three kids, say at home, is determined to be strong and in charge. But the moment she feels tired or nervous or weak, she thinks she's a complete failure. That's polarized thinking. Strong and completely in charge or complete failure. No, she's having a bad day. Or think back to the pandemic and our views about vaccines. What were you thinking about people who held the opposite view to you? Brothers and sisters in Christ. And sadly... We saw many Christians get polarized in their thinking and making statements like, you're either with us or you're against us. Brothers and sisters. But the reality is everyone is on the continuum of spiritual growth, including us, and there is room in multiple areas for middle ground. None of us have arrived. Nobody's perfect. Philippians 3, 12 to 15. Look at Paul's attitude towards himself. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made it his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is only one perfect person in all of history and his name was Jesus Christ. And you and I are on a journey towards Christ-likeness. We learn and we grow. We learn and we grow. And hopefully we learn and grow together. And this journey will not end until the end of our lives. So we must take captive polarized thinking and perfectionism for the enemy loves to use those thoughts to condemn us, to beat us down, to raise division or cause division. And then a third pattern of limited thinking is shoulds. Shoulds. A list of ironclad rules about how you and other people should act. And people who break your rules anger you. And you feel guilty when you violate the rules. And Christians need to hold one another accountable. We need to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We need to exhort one another to keep going and growing spiritually. But sometimes our shoulds for others or ourselves are pretty arbitrary, pretty unreasonable even. I'll share with you one of my shoulds. Here it is. Other drivers should drive up to the speed limit and nothing lower. So, what do you think happens to me when I'm driving behind someone who's going 10 kilometers below the speed limit? And on my bad days, I get impatient. I begin to look for opportunities to pass. I begin to think negatively of the person. I wonder what's wrong with them. And I am tempted when I finally get opportunity to pass to give them a nasty look. And it's not a death stare or anything like that. Just a look that is going to communicate to them very clearly. You are not going to get a certificate from the Tom Anders approval of driving school. (laughs) But why should everyone drive to the speed limit and not a kilometer less? What if they're having a bad day? What if they just lost a loved one? What if they were in an accident recently and and they're just being cautious? What if they're just learning to drive? And we can apply our shoulds to the way others dress and look, talk and walk, laugh, parent, or live their Christian lives. The reality is people have different personalities, methods, and preferences. God calls diverse people into his family, so by his grace, we must learn to accept and work with others who are different than us. For what does Jesus say? Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus says. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And there are several more limited thinking and sinful thinking patterns that we don't have time with today. Catastrophizing is one where we say what if and always think of the worst thing possible leads to anxiety. Overgeneralization. You see a person wearing a slightly red scarf. Oh, look at that person. They're a communist. (laughs) Personalization, where we conclude the reaction of people in a certain situation is all about us. Mind reading, oh, I know what they're thinking. I know exactly what they're thinking. No, you don't. Magnifying. If you want to talk to me about some of those, I'll be happy to talk with you sometime. But do you see how such thinking needs first to be identified and then changed to come under the authority of Christ? And so we're going to do a Sabbath practice that I want you to do right now and continue on in your spiritual journey. It's called Taking Thoughts Captive, according to Proverbs 14.8. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. So we have to think about our thinking. We have to ask ourselves, if I keep thinking and heading this way in my life, will I like where I arrive? Wise people ask that question, fools don't. They keep making excuses for themselves, justifying, blaming all the way to nowhere. They never change their minds. So, here's the practice, and I want to invite you to do this right now. The first step is to pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. So if you want to bow your head, and you can affirm this prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked or offensive way in me. That's the prayer. And then we invite the Spirit to search and reveal one habitual thought or attitude that is misleading us. Maybe it's shame or pride or self-justification or quick judgment of others or some insecurity that drives us to envy or rivalry or complacency or fear or the thought, I could never do that. And then the third, ask God to change your mind. Psalm 139, 24, and lead me in the way everlasting. And Lord God, we like to think that it's only other people who need to change their thinking because we're right. But all of us have been stained by sin. 
all of us have experienced a warping of our nature and our thinking by various things that have happened in our lives. We need our minds renewed and transformed, transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so help us, Lord, to be willing, open, receptive to your pointing out our wrong thinking and pointing to how you want us to think. And as we come to your table, we remember that to actually do this cost Jesus his life so that we could be in close relationship with you, oh Father, Jesus had to die and pour out his blood so that our thinking could be changed. Help us not to take it lightly. And thank you for your willingness and the weapons that you empower us with that have divine power to demolish strongholds that reside in our minds. We pray in your name.